Hi, folks. Welcome to our BC Elections uh, series we're hosting today. We're lucky to have Mr. David Eby, QC, BC NDP candidate for Vancouver Point Grey. Until last week, David was the Attorney General and Minister of Justice for British Columbia. But there's been an election called, so we don't ha have the opportunity to call him the Honourable right now. Uh, but David is our first guest in this SNAP election series, where we'll be interviewing candidates from around the Lower Mainland. Today, we'll try and talk about four items. We're going to talk about the SNAP election, and we're going to talk about why the NDP chose to call that uh, with such short order, especially during a global pandemic, and the criticism that you've received from the Liberal and Green Party for that. We're going to talk about what is winning look like to the NDP. You're obviously vying for a, a four-year mandate with a majority government, like most uh, parties, they want a majority, of course. So what does that mean for British Columbians? And then we're going to talk about your two signature issues, one of them being pipelines and that fight against pipeline expansion and the TMX, as well as money laundering. So David, thank you for coming on the show, uh, back to the show. Of course, this is your second time here. So let's dive right into this. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's start off with the NDP getting a lot of criticism, obviously by Andrew Wilkinson, your nearby neighbor in the constituency just south of you, over getting deciding to, to proceed with a snap election. Uh, why do you think it is that you're getting that criticism today? And what was the decision-making process around choosing to have such a quick election? Well, um, let me just start uh, by saying it's great to be back. Andrew, thanks okay. for having me on the podcast <laughs> again. You know, you, uh, I think it's been uh, maybe even a couple of years. Uh, about a year, actually. A year? About yeah. a year? Yeah. Since I was on the podcast and you've done so well. And, I, and we were saying before we came on, uh, the fact that you kept going, that you've had success with it. I just want to really uh, recognize that because podcasts uh, come and go, but you're going the distance. And, and thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, and thanks thank to your you. listeners. Um, for uh, for the election, for the reason why uh, the premier decided to call an election, um, it's, uh, it's pretty straightforward. Um, we have a minority parliament with about uh, 12 months left in the mandate. Um, the recovery from the pandemic for British Columbia is going to take years. Uh, the economic plans that we're rolling out um, are multi-year plans. Uh, and for uh, British Columbians, uh, the Premier uh, believed, and for businesses and for others, uh, the Premier believed the best uh, plan was to get uh, stability, to get a mandate for the party to bring British Columbia through the next four years of recovery. Um, it didn't seem to serve uh, anybody to have inconsistency about whether or not programs that are started now would be continued, would be dismantled. Um, and uh, we want to make sure that people have certainty that when we're making commitments to do a multi-year program, it'll be delivered uh, so that they can invest and they can make decisions based on that um, because we've got a lot of rebuilding to do. It's obviously a difficult uh, decision for the premier. He really wrestled with it and he was quite public about that. Um, and, uh, and I think that, um, you know, for myself, uh, recognizing that even a year from now, uh, when the uh, fixed date election was, uh, that we'd still be in a pandemic, um, having that consistency for a four-year mandate for whatever party is successful in the election is going to be an important thing for British Columbians going forward. Uh, one of the questions, or one of the things that came up with was with Sonia first and all that came on the news is that apparently she called uh, John Horgan on the Friday just before he made that announcement, saying, "You've got our support." Um, we've got two seats that we represent. You guys have 47, I think. 
Um, so between the two, you've got um, uh, you've got a majority effectively. But then John Horgan came back and said, well, yeah, but there were two things that were recently tried to get passed in the Legislative Assembly that weren't supported by the Green Party. And so he didn't feel that was the case. Do you how do you see that? Do you support that view? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I want to uh, say that I enjoyed uh, very much working with Sonia and Adam in the legislature and with yeah. Andrew Wilk. Uh, Weaver. Andrew Weaver, yeah. yeah one of the yeah. Andrew W's uh, with yeah. Andrew Weaver in the legislature. Um, and uh, I certainly share a lot of uh, common ground with people who support the Green Party and with uh, people who represent the Green Party in the legislature. Yeah. Uh, we have some important points of difference, but we share a lot of ground. And uh, and so I'm extremely reluctant to uh, criticize them uh, because I think they were uh, quite sincere in their intent to support the government. But even with their support, um, the... Uh, it doesn't provide British Columbians with certainty, multi-year certainty around government programs going forward. Yeah. And the premier was very concerned about a couple of bills that uh, um, one that was killed and one that didn't uh, that was ultimately uh, supported in the legislature, but was on a confidence matter. Um, and uh, I know that was part of his decision making process. Um, to me, uh, the need for multi-year consistency in the recovery plan was uh, an essential element to, to the premier's decision. Okay. There's an old saying, which is, is a bird in the hand is better to in the bush. And you guys are ranking really well right now in the polls. Is it fair to say that part of the reason behind this is that you, this is, from a strategic standpoint, simply a really good time, uh, not knowing what the certain what the future is going to hold. This is a good time for you guys to lock down a majority. Um, I ran in 2013. Okay. Uh, with the NDP, I, I had uh, run in a 2011 by-election and then was running in the general in 2013 when I was first elected. Yeah, uh, And the polls looked very similar for the NDP um, at that time uh, under Adrian Dix. Okay. Uh, the, I remember a cover of the province, you know, this man could kick a dog and still uh, be the premier of British Columbia. It was yeah. uh, sort of a tasteless uh, headline, but uh, illustrated how inevitable everybody thought the NDP's victory was going to be. Um, so... I'm not the only person who was in that election or the only person in our party who remembers uh, that polls can collapse in a hurry in this province, Yeah. Um, especially when people um, are saying they're going to vote for the provincial conservative party. Uh, those votes typically all go to the BC liberals, um, especially when uh, people say they're going to vote for a particular party uh, in a moment because they're feeling good about something that happened, uh, but then uh, they change their mind later on. Uh, so it's it campaigns matter. Uh, and I think you're um, absolutely right uh, uh, to some degree uh, in the in the sense that, yes, the polls are positive right now for the NDP, and rightfully so. I think uh, Premier Horgan did a great job uh, with uh, Adrian Dix and Bonnie Henry on the pandemic. Uh, I think we've done a good job as a government in doing the things we said we were going to do, the biggest middle-class tax cut through the MSP uh, elimination. Uh, other initiatives like that, uh, environmental initiatives and uh, economic initiatives, childcare, uh, schools, I could go on. Um, but so there's a reason and there's a structure behind those uh, support numbers. Um, but the irony of people pointing out um, the poll numbers is, uh, you know, regardless, uh, the issues of the pandemic, the issues of stability, the issues that the premier has raised are there and uh, they don't go away simply because of a poll or um, not. I have to say, um, I am very skeptical about polls after my experience in 2013. Last question on this topic for me is, um, are British Columbians being put, is their health being put at risk 
for the sake of the NDP calling a snap election, in your view, from a perspective of having to get out, go to polls and vote and that type of thing, and knowing that there's a global pandemic and the more social interaction people have, the more, you know, there's, there's more cross-contamination of this of this virus. Sure. Are, are British Columbians truly being, or is that is that not really something that you guys see as being a, an issue? Well, um, from the beginning of the pandemic, we've relied on uh, the scientists and the independent officers to get us through this process. And so when I hear from Elections BC and Bonnie Henry that we can do this in a manner that's safe, I believe them. Yeah. Um, and I also um, have confidence in Elections BC to, uh, to do this if we can grocery shop and if we can do these other things then you know we can line up and vote and and most people seem to be aligned on this initially the liberals made some comment about a dangerous election but you know if you visit their website now you can see that they uh, uh agree that you can vote safely and that this will be and if you're concerned you can do a mail-in ballot i think a significant number of people will do a mail-in ballot we've seen elections in new brunswick done safely yeah. um and so um and the the concern that people have about the pandemic doesn't go away a year from now Sure. Um, most experts say we're a year out from a, a vaccine uh, and distribution and widespread immunity from that. And yeah. so um, regardless, there would be a pandemic election and and uh, it's now or 12 months from now. Right. I believe that uh, amongst all the sadness of COVID and the deaths that have happened, there's going to be some phenomenal disruptions that happen. And one of them I hopeful is is that we can see um, a progress, a progression or an improvement in the way in which we can vote. It's unfortunate to me that people don't vote. Um, it'd be nice to see a higher turn voter turnout and, but if we can make it easier for people by mail-in or ideally eventually by online of somehow, uh, which I'm sure most millennials would support, uh, I think we'll get a much higher, um, participation in politics, which would be nice. What can British Columbians expect from a majority BC NDP government over the next four years? Uh, if people like what they've seen over the last um, three and a half years, um, yeah. they will see more of that. They will see uh, economic development, keeping in mind um, the realities of carbon pollution and climate change. Uh, they will see an emphasis on investing in people in our province around uh, schools and education. Uh, the uh, best guide I think that's available to people is the economic restart work that we set out um, in the uh, in the. Uh, sort of week before uh, the election was announced, people can look at that. That is what we will be implementing. Uh, and uh, and so for Vancouverites, uh, it means important uh, changes in terms of housing, uh, increasing emphasis on housing affordability. Uh, it means important shifts around um, how our economy um, uh, is building towards the growth in the sector, which is clean, uh, clean economic development, and uh, and for BC to be a real player in that. And I think the pandemic has really underlined for us uh, the need for British Columbia to be increasingly uh, self reliant. That we need to have food security. That uh, the the concerns that people had about empty shelves in our um, in our grocery stores, and all of a sudden understanding the connections that we have to California and where a lot of our food comes from, and uh, and other uh, supply chains that need for us to be more uh, resilient in the face of disruption of those supply chains, especially with the trends around government in the United mm -hmm. States. Um, there will be a great interest and there is a great interest in our government in increasing that, uh, that ability of British Columbia to stand uh, strong uh, in the face of these kinds of disruptions that are probably going to become more regular. Yeah. Let's assume, so I think, thank you for that. So that's a good uh, overview. Um, David, let's assume that you don't get a majority. Let's assume that you go back to your job after the election and we're back in the exact same spot. Two seats by the Greens, 
and let's assume there's no independents that win and the NDP have 48 seats and uh, the BC Liberals have 48 seats. What, is th what do things look like then? Uh, you know, uh, we, we have seen that movie before yeah. uh, and, uh, and I don't see any reason why it would play out uh, differently. The parties would have to figure out a way to work together and whoever yeah. could would, would form government. Yeah, okay. Um, okay, well, let's jump to the two signature issues in your wheelhouse mm -hmm. uh, being money laundering and pipelines. I'd like to talk about pipelines first. Sure. Um, so just to kind of paint the picture, your party, as I understand it, is basically anti-pipeline, or at least you're anti-TMX. You can comment on that in a moment. Um, and I think you're pretty strongly supported by Jagmeet Singh and the federal NDP. There's like, I see, what I see is an outside observer, pretty high alliance there. John Horgan and Jagmeet Singh have been on tape together talking about this issue. You fought it as, uh, from a legal perspective, and I, and I don't remember exactly what happened. You can enlighten us, but we lost, as I understood. So first of all, first question is, does the BC NDP oppose the pipeline coming through to the coastal waters here in BC? Uh, or t articulate on that. And then number two is what t tools do you have in the toolbox as far as what, are, you know, what else can you do to, to fight this fight? Well, um, from the beginning, um, we have been incredibly concerned about this project that is going to bring this uh, diluted bitumen into the harbor in Vancouver. And just to be clear, we're talking about the TMX. The TMX the, pipeline. The, the, the doubling of the pipeline. Yeah, that's 20, right. 20 pipeline. Okay. And the concern is based on the absolutely catastrophic impacts that a spill would have on Vancouver's economy. You know, our uh, in, in pre-COVID, and it will be again post-COVID, our economy in Vancouver, built in no small part on our reputation for it being a clean environment, pristine kind of whales, uh, you know, uh, vibe in Vancouver and a spill um, that can uh, immediately tarnish our reputation around tourism, around uh, companies that might want to invest and so on, uh, would be devastating. And so British Columbia is asked to take on a huge amount of risk. Uh, and uh, the project uh, is yet another example, in my opinion, of a project that um, takes raw resources out of Canada does not develop them here, does not refine them here, does not add value to them here, and ships them somewhere else for that value-add process to take place. At some point, this country um, and, uh, and our province, uh, and we've started the, that work in British Columbia, um, especially with respect to forestry, at some point we have to say we need to be adding value to these products here. And so from an environmental point of view, from an uh, economic point of view, uh, this project doesn't make sense because we know that we need refined product here in the lower mainland. People still use cars that burn gasoline and so on. But what's proposed to be in the pipeline is not uh, gasoline. It's proposed to be diluted bitumen. So that's in a nutshell the reasons for opposing the pipeline. We went to the courts. Um, uh, we believed uh, that we had the ability uh, to put conditions on. Uh, and we the province. Uh, we right? the is province. That, yes. We okay. the government. Government. Uh, okay believed that we had the ability to put conditions on the the pipeline's uh, development. Uh, the courts said, no, you can't. And at what level were these courts, David? Uh, we went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada with the, with the reference case. Okay. Um, and, uh, and we were also in federal court as well. Um, the federal challenge was partly successful. Um, but at the end of the day, the courts were clear, you know, it was a federal project and, and hands off. Um, to, to, uh, and what was the reference case that you guys used? 
uh, we put forward a proposed set of regulations uh, that we, uh, if we had been successful, we would have made law, or if the court had given us direction about how to amend them to make them compliant with the Constitution, uh, and the court rejected them. Okay. So we're in the position of, uh, obviously, uh, looking at a project that we don't like. Uh, we don't think benefits British Columbians. Uh, we uh, think is the wrong direction in terms of resource development, and how do we um, live with that? And so part of it is um, really pushing, uh, my colleague George Hammond has really been pushing around safety, um, around what can we do to maximize uh, uh, the information that British Columbians have about what's going through the pipeline, about how it's handled, about what we're going to do when the spill happens, because the spill will happen, because there have been multiple spills already on this pipeline. Um, and how are we going to react to it? Or will we have another situation like we, we had with the, with the tanker that leaked the bunker fuel in the middle of, uh, of English Bay on a calm summer day? And it, yeah, that was unbelievable. It was a huge mess and the reaction was brutal, uh, in terms of cleanup. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's where we see our opportunity here is to really, okay. um, make sure that we can as best as possible protect British Columbia's economy and British Columbians from the spill when it happens. So to simplify this, it sounds to me like you guys have accepted um, fate in a sense that this pipeline will be built now. Um, and so now it's more of an effort of trying to ensure that there's the utmost amount of safety regulations in place and security for the environment. Is that a fair comment? Well, the federal government has bought it. I mean, obviously, it's not something that uh, that British Columbia was enthusiastic about taxpayer dollars going towards. But in any event, I uh, think a lot of Canadians were excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> in any event, they did buy it. And uh, and so we'll see. I mean, I know uh, the uh, premier, uh, John Horgan, has been uh, in regular uh, conversations with Justin Trudeau about uh, the federal investment and what they're going to do with it and what they're going to run through the pipeline. And, uh, you know, is there a way to um, provide some additional value add to the product before we export it and these kinds of things? I, you know, obviously uh, it changes the game to have the federal government involved. And so we're in those conversations. Okay. Do you know what the status is of this uh, development of this, the 20 of the TMAX pipeline? Is it being developed right now? Like, uh, is there actually shovels in the ground and pipe being laid uh, as we speak uh from the provincial perspective um uh the permits were being issued and the construction as i understand it was underway it, it is, is underway, underway. Yeah. yeah okay so do you guys have any uh ways to at least stall this or defer it or um you know really uh, like what to what level can you really ensure that there is safety for british columbians and for our province and our environment we, what can you do? We do have a role, and, and there are opportunities for us to uh, insist on minimum standards, but where they're outside of our constitutional authority, um, the uh, proponent has the ability to go to the courts and say, you know, let us ignore these rules that the province has put in place, which is what they did with Burnaby, uh, and when Burnaby uh, put rules in place that... Uh, the city the of Burnaby put some rules That's right, in? and okay. then the um, court said, well, you're allowed to ignore those rules now. Uh, and oh, wow. construction of the pipeline. So we don't want to be in that position. We want to uh, maintain our uh, our role here, obviously, uh, to ensure that British Columbians are as protected as possible. Mm -hmm. So when you say you don't want to be in that position, does that mean you would not take something all the way to the courts? Um, you would try no, to we, I mean, if necessary, I guess we could. But I um, I think that, uh, that uh, both the proponent and uh, the province and the federal government, I think we all understand uh, where the lines are that the court is drawn okay. uh, on the pipeline. And so um, the the concern that I would have is, and I hear people say, oh, well, you should do this or you should do that. And the issue is that then the courts say, well, you, now you can just ignore British Columbia and go ahead. Right. Uh, and we don't want to be in that position. Okay. 
And this decision that was made with the um, Supreme Court of Canada, that was uh, that final decision, that was already on an appeal. Is that correct? Or was that? Yeah. So it was uh, uh, on a reference case. It's a uh -huh. technical thing where governments can refer um, send a case to their courts, send a proposal to their courts and say, is this constitutional? What do you think about this? And get an advanced ruling, essentially. Okay. Uh, we were able to go to the Court of Appeal directly with that reference. Yes. And then there's an appeal as of right to the Supreme Court of Canada. So we lost to the Court of Appeal, appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the Supreme Court of Canada dismissed our appeal. And so in your view, there's a fundamental difference between 20 the CMX pipeline and the LNG um, it was called LNG project, LNG Canada. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, here's a project, uh, one project strongly opposed by First Nations, one project that uh, has the support of uh, almost every uh, nation along the line, certainly every elected band council. And then there's the hereditary uh, house issue in, um, in Wet'suwet'en. Um, yeah. But uh, by far the majority of First Nations along the line supporting the project. Uh, uh, compare TMX where you're sending a raw product out of Canada to be refined in, in uh, the LNG pipeline. Uh, there are uh, significant and ongoing jobs in terms of uh, the uh, uh, chilling and preparing of the, the product. Uh, it's within our climate change, uh, our carbon emission uh, restrictions that we put on ourselves as a government, as a province, to reduce our carbon emissions. Uh, the TMX uh, pipeline depending on how you count it, not so much, uh, does not create that level of jobs for British Columbians and does not create that economic return for British Columbians that the LNG pipeline does. So they're very different projects. Mm -hmm. And I On the know, jobs front, David, can you speak at all to what the estimated numbers would be between the two? Uh, no, I can't. I don't have those numbers in front of me, but I um, certainly am happy to provide them to you for But you're, sort of you're certain that the LNG will provide more jobs than what TMX will do? Oh, it's many more. Yeah, it's many okay. more. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's very significant. It's worth $40 billion uh, over the lifetime of the project to British Columbia. And uh, this is the largest, single largest private sector investment in British Columbia's history. Hmm. Um, and so it's a significant um, opportunity for British Columbians. And it's not an easy one. You know, yeah. I don't pretend that it's easy when you're talking about fossil fuel infrastructure and the concerns we have about climate. Um, but it's the kind of uh, give and take and discussion that we need to have about uh, resource development in our province. And it uh, uh, certainly seemed to government that this was a net benefit to the province. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, for what it's worth, I fully support the idea of any type of resource where we're just basically cutting down trees or uh, throwing raw bitumen into a pipeline and just exporting raw off of our coastline as being a bad business model. Um, so I support you guys for sure in trying to find ways in which to add value. Let's keep the jobs here. Let's do the work here. And instead of just shipping it off, let's jump to um, money laundering. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me, where are we at, first of all, with respect to this? I think it's called the Cullen Commission. Mm -hmm. And before that, you had a report done by Mr. German, I think it, mm -hmm. his name was. Yeah. Um, so can you just, for listeners who aren't familiar with this topic, just to give a real brief layman's overview of what's since you guys took office, what's happened in the world of money laundering, what you guys have identified, what reports were produced, what's being done right now. And then we'll dive into some of the specific activities of what's going on in the future. OK, so um, before uh, we were in government, um, the position of the British Columbia government was that there was uh, that if there was illegal activity taking place in our casinos that they would take action that uh, money laundering was not a significant issue in our real estate market 
um, that there was no particular need uh, to act on uh, reform in either casinos or outside of casinos in relation to money laundering, that it was largely a uh, scare tactic and uh, probably grievances from people who couldn't afford houses um, uh, that was driving the speculation. Uh, after we formed government, when I released video of people locking bags of $20 bills into the casinos, and uh, we disclosed that in one month, uh, more than $100 million in uh, bulk cash transactions had gone through BC casinos. And uh, not only that, that everybody knew, the regulator, BC Lottery Corporation, the government knew that there was widespread money laundering in BC casinos. Um, and they'd kept it secret. Uh, in fact, they had a secret report that they hadn't released about it. Um, and we released that report. Uh, so uh, it all came out into the open. Uh, we then hired uh, Peter German to do a couple reports for us, one on the casinos and then a follow-on about other sectors, including real estate. And there was a paired report from Maureen Maloney out of SFU with a team of international experts. And they said, yeah, money laundering is a problem in our real estate market. It's a problem in our luxury car market. Um, it's not just casinos, obviously. Uh, people who are trying to launder cash look for different venues to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, some really disturbing information about all of those sectors. I encourage those reports. Uh, I recommend them to anyone who's interested in learning more. Um, to address those issues, uh, major reforms in BC, uh, world-leading reforms in British Columbia around a beneficial ownership registry for properties. If you want to buy property in British Columbia, uh, the finishing touches are uh, going on the electronic registry so that you have to actually declare who owns the trust, who owns the numbered company, uh, who is the real person who owns that property. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you don't declare it, the penalties are very significant. Uh, and uh, this a tool for regulators like Revenue Canada, police, and international journalists, because it's a public registry, to look and see, oh, okay, so who does own all of those uh, suites in Trump Tower? Um, in, uh, which is something that American media have been speculating about ever since we announced the registry. Um, and so uh, that will be a very important tool. And then another uh, beneficial ownership registry for corporations in British Columbia, if you have a BC company, who's the actual person who owns it. Um, and that's an important tool. Police have been very frustrated when they have companies acting illegally. That doesn't illegally. exist today, David? No. And so uh, the registry had to be created uh, and uh, police and tax authorities can examine that registry. Uh, when you create a, a corporation registry. in B, sorry to interrupt. But no, when you ahead. create a corporation in BC, David, like a private, I'm just thinking that I've got a couple of private companies. Yeah. Uh, when our lawyers go to s set up that company, we have to declare, like, you know, who's who, who what is the breakdown of the shareholders, who they are. Yes. You know, who's the board of directors, who's yes. the secretary, who's the president of the company. Um, is that information not attainable to the government and, and there are, various authorities? There are ways to insulate uh, the true owner from uh, the police and from tax authorities. Oh, really? And so when you have a company that owns a company, especially <laughs> when the company's out of province in a jurisdiction that does protect the secrecy or when your sole director is a lawyer um, and, uh, and then you invoke solicitor client privilege over any sort of trust agreements or anything related to the company, yeah. uh, then you can conceal that. But this legislation prevents that. Uh, and so it was a huge frustration to police that they couldn't figure out who the actual owners were of some of these companies that were engaged in illegal activity uh, in the province and tax authorities too. And so we're hopeful it'll be a good tool for them. So we're transitioning from the Vancouver model. My goal, transition from the Vancouver model of money laundering, which became internationally famous, again, worth a Google if that's a new term for your listeners. Right. Um, yeah, to, there was a term for it, right? Yeah, yeah, the Vancouver model of money laundering and to be the Vancouver model of, uh, of money laundering prevention. We've got a number of reforms that... Um, are addressing that. And the, one of the pieces I want to underline and is the speculation tax. You know, uh, 
we um, have said that if you own properties and it's uh, you're keeping it vacant and you're holding it as an investment, um, that uh, that you need to pay a different uh, tax level on that because it has knock-on impacts on British Columbians and we need to mitigate those um, by investing that money in affordable housing. Um, and so that tool also is in place uh, and it's raised now hundreds of millions of dollars and um, and uh, that have gone into affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And 11,000 rental housing markets, it, it had, rental housing units have come on the market because of that tax uh, because if you rent out your unit and don't just leave it vacant, then you can avoid the tax entirely. So, sure. Good idea. Yeah. Well, I love. I live up in West Point Grey, mm-hmm. and as you know, because I've talked to you about this many times before, uh, my neighborhood is pretty much void of any human being, or had been, uh, because they were owned by what I would speculate were offshore um, owners, and there's a lot more people there now. Is that right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Glad to hear yeah. that. <laughs> Glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that I can identify four houses that there are people living in them now. Um, wow. So yeah, well, it's good to hear that yeah. sort of frontline. I, I don't know. I'm feedback. assuming that, assuming that's the reason. Uh, I got to think because otherwise, you said like you said, the penalties. Statscan tells us it's a big factor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, look, we've talked about this subject a lot. We talked about actually on the last podcast, and, and you just mentioned it, which is this uh, beneficial ownership registry. You talked about uh, this is new to me, but that uh, that uh, police and other authorities haven't had access to seeing who the owners are private corporations in BC. And this all goes back to, in my world, in the financial markets, I mean, you know, what they call AML and KYC. So KYC is what, you know, your client. AML, of course, is anti-money laundering. And it's amazing to me when I contrast the financial services industry, which is regulated by the BC Securities Commission and IROC, um, the Investment in- in Industry Regulatory Authority of Canada. And what I have to go through, so David, you want to become a client of mine. I'm a financial advisor, you want to become a client of mine. The amount of information I have to attain from you and your wife to have you just open up a simple RSP account is insane. Um, it's a, there's a lot of information, maybe a little more than you should have to give, but there's a lot. And it comes down to like, you know, who's your employer, getting your social insurance number, what's your net worth, what's your income, what are your sources of income. And then we have to submit all this information, of course, to the institutions like FinTrack. Um, and I'd love to get your thoughts on FinTrack. By contrast, when I look at like what you have to submit to a realtor to buy some real estate, it's virtually nothing. Um, so I'm a big fan of, and, and I've also, I've personally been really skeptical over this. I know before you guys became into government, you talked about that the real estate prices had risen a lot in Vancouver and a lot of homes became unaffordable because of uh, you know offshore money. And my argument has always been, well, how about maybe it's because of the fact that debt's been so damn cheap for the last 20 years. Maybe there's other factors. I believe the answer is, you know, we don't know till we have the data and we've never collected the data as far as I'm concerned. Now you're going to do that, which I think is really smart because if you collect the data, if you find out who the beneficial owners are, you find out where they live, you find out where their residence is, what their citizenship, whatever you want to call it, get that data together, you can pile it. Now you can make a, a clear distinction. You know, you can either support the argument that this real estate has risen in value beyond affordability for most people because of foreign money or it hasn't but my concern that i have and we've talked about this in our last podcast is this 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 this, um registry is going to be public right and i can see on one hand if you don't make it public then people can say well you're you're hiding information as a government but on the flip side there's a safety concern over public information of me being able to identify um, i'll throw in a name that everybody knows jimmy pattison and I can go and see exactly what homes he owns. And, you know, or yourself, David, for that matter. Like, where do you live? What do you own? 
right? And there's a safety factor there. Bonnie Henry's just been recently apparently been threatened. I mean, it's horrendous what she's have to go through. I mean, that woman of everybody, but it shouldn't be right that people can just publicly see what is Bonnie Henry own in real estate. Can you comment to that, please? Yeah. So uh, the reality is for 95% of British Columbians uh, and property owners, uh, they uh, list their names in the land title registry. And that is exactly what you can do. Uh, you can look at an address in British Columbia. You can get the property identifier number. You can find out who owns it. You can search that registry today. Yeah. There are a group of people who own property through corporations, uh, number corporations, through trusts, uh, through proxy owners. Uh, and um, those are the people who will be affected by this. Um, and uh, you can already go and see uh, the companies that Jamie Pattison owns and which houses they own and, and so on. Uh, assuming that he's structured the companies in that way that there's that level of transparency. But soon, uh, tax authorities and others will be able to see that uh, and use the beneficial property ownership registry to identify those. Okay, so tax authorities will, police will, but will you and I as a public member of the public be able to actually log onto a website, pull up an address, and because what well, you just referenced, the registry? Yes, the you, land title registry. Land title registry? Yeah. In order to get that information, you actually have to pay, I think it's like $12.50 for each you do. name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it, it makes it prohibitive for someone to just snoop around, so to speak. Mm. And that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not concerned about the odd person who might want to take a look, you know, especially when lawyers run registry for transactions. But how is this going to look? Can you describe for us? Is it something that I'm going to literally like click on a map and go, oh, I wonder who lives in that house? Yeah, I don't know what uh, decisions, if any, the finance minister has made about um, about cost access or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I do know that that information of uh, who actually owns the property um, or who <laughs> who says they own the property, let's put it that way, or the yeah. company that owns the property is all available right now. Yeah. Um, there are certainly cases where you would, uh, for public safety reasons, not want someone's name in the registry. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the most commonly given and one where there's an explicit exemption in the uh, legislation is around uh, someone uh, fleeing violence. You know, yeah, you've got sure. the got a spouse uh, that's a violent person trying to track down where did uh, their partner go uh, and uh, and so this is an example of those so you do need to have those kinds of safeguards and yeah. that's absolutely true yeah um, so who but, makes those decisions David like who is I mean obviously it sounds like you guys are thinking about that you're not going to be foolish enough as to yeah. just publish thing without taking those considerations into play but how does it who makes those decisions how are those decisions made so the finance minister issued a uh, white paper about the uh, how the beneficial ownership registry would work okay. and received recommendations from a number of different groups around exactly this kind of thing yeah. uh, so that we avoided as many unintended uh, consequences as possible. Okay. Um, and uh, those issues all existed under the old land title registry. Yeah. Uh, and so these aren't new uh, problems to deal with. Uh, so they're going to exist under the beneficial ownership registry as well. The only difference will be uh, that you can't uh, hide uh, behind a numbered company or an offshore trust or these kinds of things anymore. Okay. So let's fast forward to the date in which you guys have this uh, public registry available. Now, CRA, the police, yourselves, everybody can get access to this. What do you seek as the next step? Because clearly identifying who owns what I think is a great step forward. I very much support that. Now you start to identify, oh, this house is owned by a politically exposed person or someone who's, you know, is on some list somewhere, a bad boy list. Yeah. What's the next steps? How do you deal with that? Well, there are a whole array of uh, enforcement options that are available okay. all the way from police investigations 
uh, to uh, financial regulator investigations, Revenue Canada investigations, and so on. The challenge I found um, is that these matters are complex. Uh, they can be low return to Revenue Canada, like you you know you spend a, get a huge number of auditors on a single file, and then you do the math about how much it costs to do the investigation versus what you got back in terms of lost taxes, and it's better to chase the people who aren't declaring tips or the corner store that right. you know screwed up their filing or whatever it is yeah. in terms of a return per auditor, and so we've really been pushing Ottawa to um, dedicate those resources and say, look, in terms of people's public confidence in the tax system. Uh, you really need to dedicate people to uh, following up on this work. And so at the provincial level of the Ministry of Finance, um, that work has already begun in relation to uh, the declarations that were made around the speculation tax. Um, and that work is absolutely vital to identify tax fraud, money laundering, and other kinds of work. Um, I'm very frustrated by groups like FinTrack, um, that, uh, and I don't blame anyone that works there, let's get that straight, around government policy and laws related to FinTrack. Uh, that the emphasis is on collecting information, bringing in all this information, uh, and then that's kind of it. That's the whole focus is gathering the information. What about the enforcement end of things? Exactly. What about actually following up on I mean, uh, the Fintrax information? How does that happen? It's so frustrating to watch. Yeah. Fintrax virtually had no prosecutions since they started doing and increasing their vigilance on, on AML. Yes. So, so the the, the so challenges, I mean, they collect this information, they say it's available for prosecutions, available for police, and then the police say, well, we don't have resources. And then, you know, it, it just, uh, it goes around and around and there's nobody finally saying, okay, this is it. And to see the federal government, I mean, just before Christmas this year, this past year, they, um, they defunded a, a financial crime uh, center of excellence in Ontario that had about 200 RCMP officers working on uh, financial crime nationally and uh, they dismantled it. And so that really broke my heart because we're pushing the feds like, you guys need to have sure. uh, national level police on this because it's international flows of money. Uh, and so, you know, at, at the provincial level, we've beefed up um, our uh, anti-money laundering unit re related to the casinos and the activity in the casinos and also um, the inspectors that are in the casinos and that kind of thing, which, um, you know, casinos are closed now, so yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's another story but you know enforcement is important and you need to have somebody doing the audits and you need to have a consequence of the audits uh, and you need to collect the information but then you actually need to use the information so do you have a concern that you guys are going to put a ton of time and resources and energy into um, exposing the truth so to speak of who owns what and and who is responsible for this so-called money laundering problem that Vancouver has developed to have it fall on deaf ears federally because that's their job is to do the enforcement and perse persecution prosecution uh, are you is that a concern of yours yeah i'm frustrated about that kind of thing i you know we saw the um silver international prosecution um fall apart which is a federal yes. prosecution it was very hard to watch um and uh, so it is a fear of mine um but i, I can assure you and your listeners that the province in the areas where we have authority we're aggressively moving on that and the reason isn't um you know, some people say, oh, you know, you're going to chase all this economic activity out and people are just going to do it somewhere else. I don't understand why you're so focused on this kind of crime. I mean, there was a shooting in Richmond uh, last week involving two of the principals alleged to be involved in the Silver International yeah. file. One was killed. Uh, they were at a, a Japanese restaurant in Richmond, public. Yeah. Uh, one was killed and one was injured. And so these things are directly connected to gang crime, to violent crime, and we can't ignore it. Absolutely. And... You know, money makes the world go round, including the criminal world. So we have to stamp it out. 
Um, to dumb this down for the average British Columbian of how money laundering works, let's say I've got, I run into $2 million. I was going to say a million, but you can't buy anything for $2 million these days in Vancouver. So I got $2 million bucks of illegal money. How the heck do I launder that into buying a house in Vancouver? Like, because I can hear people, they listen to this on the news. They see you get, you know, you're, you're being quoted about this money laundering problem we have. But I don't think the average, because most of us are law abiding citizens. We don't, we're not laundering money. We're going to our job, paying our taxes and, you know, we buy our house with a mortgage. How does a person actually launder money in this province? Sure. I, I mean, first, I would really recommend, you know, if you're looking for podcast guests, uh, Peter German uh, might be a good person to reach out to. This is where he's an international expert, wrote the book on it, did the reports for British Columbia. Okay. Um, but uh, I've, I've had a whole uh, uh, education in this as well. Uh, because when I was the critic for gaming, you know, I was brought into a casino and they, they, people patiently explained to me how it was basically impossible to launder money through a BC casino and I fell for it. Um, and, uh, you know, I am very frustrated that that happened. Uh, and uh, because when I became minister, obviously that wasn't true. <laughs> uh, and so uh, there's a public inquiry underway to answer that question for British Columbians. Uh, Justice uh, Cullen uh, is running that inquiry and we'll have the witnesses will tell British Columbians what they know about how it actually happens in our province. There's two parts to money laundering. One is the part where you have all of these bills that are really hard to manage and you need to either get them into larger bills or get them into the system somehow. And the second uh, piece is once you have them in the system to move them through multiple channels to conceal the original origin of the funds. And so um, our casinos um, uh, were involved in um, part of that. Uh, where the, the bulk bills were coming in uh, and being loaned to uh, or being um, uh, given to uh, gamblers who were then paying for that money by through bank account transfers. And in that way, the gangsters were able to get these really hard to handle $20 bills out of their pockets and get a bank transfer in to pay for that money from some other jurisdiction. And so then it's in the system. And once it's in the system, then you can layer it through multiple transactions. People have raised concerns about lawyers' trust accounts because when it passes through a lawyer's trust account, the, yeah. the privilege can attach and that can mean that uh, authorities don't know where it came from or where it went um, as as one key sector that uh, the international community has raised concerns about in Canada, um, but also through businesses and other transactions, uh, trade transactions back and forth between different countries, uh, parent trade tra transactions that aren't actually. So the federal government has, to their credit, put some money into uh, trade-based money laundering and these kinds of movement of assets internationally to try to follow that up. So it's... Um, it's quite a sophisticated business. Another example in British Columbia is people walking bags of uh, money in to pay for luxury cars, uh, loading the luxury cars into containers to sell overseas where there's a, an arbitrage play where essentially you uh, can sell the car for more in another in another in a third country. So you pay cash for the car, you load the car. Can you, into a you can pay for a, ca a car with cash here in BC. Yes, uh, that was part of uh, Dr. Still do that? Uh Yes, you can. Yeah, we've. Oh. Uh, um, uh, been working with uh, police and others to uh, put restrictions in place, and um, and but there is this issue of the arbitrage uh, play where the car is worth more money in another country, and so mm -hmm. um, and so that's another example of how uh, this is being done. And so uh, I suspect that in the public inquiry they'll uncover even other methodologies of how people get the money into the system and then move it around. Yeah. Uh, and I've asked them to examine it as thoroughly as they can and report out to the public. Okay. It's a complex issue. It is. It is. And people's and you guys eyes have a big fight. can glaze over. And I think the connection to real estate is really what kept it 
front and center for people in in Metro Vancouver and why it's so important to British Columbians. Yeah, let's let's to wrap this up, David. Let's go back to the to the election. Okay, uh, we have an election uh, with COVID happening. So, um, my question is, how hard is it to engage with people? about things other than COVID. We've done a good job here of talking about that, but I, it seems like whenever you turn on the news, it's it's almost like nobody wants to talk about anything other than COVID. But I'd like to think that voters, when they go to the polls, will be thinking about more than just COVID because you're you're probably right, this this pandemic is gonna be an issue we're gonna be dealing with a year from now, hopefully not four from now. Mm-hmm. And you guys are looking for a four-year mandate. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you comment, comment on that? Yeah, I think the, the vision for what kind of uh, rebuilding and how we're going to do that in the province, where the investments should be to uh, help us rebuild better. Um, I hope that is an election issue. I hope it's one that uh, that shows up. I mean, I'm hearing from Andrew Wilkinson. You know, he wants to cancel the speculation tax. He um, he wants to cancel um, uh, you know a, a modest increase in tax on uh, people who are earning significantly more money that was used to pay for things like childcare and. Uh, reduce costs for families that were really struggling and middle-class families and so you know he's got a vision it's a different vision um and uh you know if he's going to do tax cuts he's going to have to cut some of those child care services and he's going to have to cut some of the housing services that we funded which um would be hard to take uh there's a contrast between the two parties and um and i think that uh, d- that contrast will be the topic of the discussion and um and it won't be exclusively covid okay there's a fellow on my team that works for me. His name's Sean, and I, he let me talk about Sean. He's 25. Mm-hmm. He's a bright guy, salesperson on our team, starting to earn income that's you know got some decent tax impacts now, but he's, he's doing well for himself. I asked him the other day about his thoughts on the election. He didn't know we had an election, basically. Mm-hmm. He was, he's completely unengaged. He's more interested in knowing what's going on with sports, and I don't blame him. He's 26 years, 25 years old. He's a single guy. Good-looking guy, by the way, ladies, if you want to meet Sean. <laughs> um, how do you get younger people? Because the majority of people that vote, of course, are going to be the older generation, which is kind of called the boomers, right? But the millennials, I mean, of course, you've got somebody like on your team, like Bo Ma, who's going to come on here next week. She's engaged so much that she became an MLA. But there's a lot of people that are in that age category that just aren't engaged. How do you get them engaged, David? Uh, I get Sean engaged. Yeah, I think, you know, I think part of the story is people like Bowen and uh, and uh, we have a candidate in Vancouver, Langara, Tessica Trong, who's just amazing, another uh, young person running. And um, and so these folks um, really do activate a different base a different group of people who are enthusiastic about change and see the opportunities and also see the crises that are coming for us the climate crisis and others and so uh it's quite exciting what's happening i am really seeing uh young people stepping up i think we will have a huge uh uh number of young people participating um just with everything that's been happening with the fires along the west coast and uh, with the discussion about the direction of our province and COVID and other things, people are just paying more attention. And I think uh, I'm very hopeful for that. And the other piece, uh, Andrew, is there was a deliberate decision, in my opinion, that was made to disenfranchise young people um, by the previous government by setting the fixed election date uh, in the spring, in May. Uh, the then leader of the party, Gordon Campbell, was in the UBC constituency. And I am sure that it crossed his mind that if he had a fixed election date in the fall, in October, uh, there would be a lot of young people voting. And uh, and so uh, that meant that students sort of spread all over the province instead of at their post-secondary institutions when voting day came. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
we know, Coca-Cola knows, Pepsi knows that the habits that you form in your post-secondary education last for the rest of your life. And, right. and that includes voting. <laughs> and so we, uh, I'm hopeful that we see that kind of turnout this time. Okay. Okay, good. Um, who are candidates you are really excited about during this election? Uh, so Tesca is one of them for sure. Uh, Brenda Bailey in uh, Vancouver Falls Creek. She just got nominated. She okay. comes from the tech world. Uh, did some really neat work with uh, women in technology and uh, is a su successful entrepreneur on her own. Um, a really neat uh, candidate, Nikki Sharma, who's running in Vancouver Hastings, uh, Shane Simpson's old seat. Um, up uh, up north, we have uh, on the island uh, uh, Rob Douglas, a really neat uh, leader. Uh, that and and the consistent theme among these folks, they're young, they're enthusiastic, and they're ready to go, uh, and uh, and they're going to shape the future of uh, BC politics. And and they're not just the usual suspects, you know. And uh, and they're really well, going to shake out a couple things heavyweights up. too. They're going to shake things with, up with your your friend Nathan. Yeah, Cullen, Nathan Collins right. up in Skeena, um, Murray Rankin. side. Yeah, Murray, and we have, uh, uh, you know, the mayor of Tofino who's running for us in in Alberni there. Right. And, uh, yeah. and so, you know, there are some great candidates coming out, and I'm I'm certainly excited about the people who are stepping up to run. Now, uh, uh, our minister of finance, our former minister of finance, um, Carol James, she sadly uh, is not going to be rerunning because she's sadly been diagnosed with Parkinson's. I think it was what it was announced. And she's our Minister of Finance, or had up until this election. Um, assuming you guys win, do you have any speculation who the next Minister of Finance would be? Because that's a pretty important role. Yeah, it's a really important role. And uh, and uh, assuming we form government, uh, which is a big assumption, there's a big election and campaigns, as I say, really matter. Yeah. Uh, the Premier will have an important decision to make um, about a finance minister, but not just that, around cabinet. Yeah. As we just said, there are a lot of really neat people who are running that bring diverse backgrounds and perspectives uh, potentially to the cabinet table. And uh, I don't assume uh, for a second that the roles that the premier had me in before uh, are the same ones that would show up for me uh, next time or even that there would be one at all. I got a hustle. OK. Uh, and I, I uh, hope the premier approves the work, approves of the work I've done and then I'm back at the cabinet table. But that's going to be his call to make if yeah. we if we cross the line. Well, that's a humble comment. I don't know. Maybe it'll be you that is a minister of finance. So <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Well, David, thanks for coming on today. Good luck for, for to you and your team. Thanks and for having me. Yeah, it's been a really good conversation, and uh, hopefully people got something out of this. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll be seeing you as uh, David E.B. MLA for Vancouver. What's our area called? Vancouver Point, Point, Gray. Point Gray. Yeah. Um, if people want to get involved, they want to get help you out, what can they do? Uh, DavidEB.ca uh, is, uh, is the website uh, for all your campaign-related information. Okay. Great. Well, David Eby, thank you for coming on the show today. Best of luck. Thanks for there. having me, man. Okay. It was a lot of Thanks. fun. That was good. Thanks.